This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and my guest today is a dear, dear friend, the legendary spiritual leader and yoga teacher, Guru Singh. I met Guru in the early 90s because I wanted to see what all the hype was about, frankly. He was becoming known for being a big-hearted man of great spiritual depth and humor who people of all faiths were flocking to. Los Angeles Magazine had just called him the best guru in LA and claimed that his classes were so popular you had to levitate for space. I was thinking, huh, that sounds a little dramatic. Prove it, mister. And boy, did he ever. I was and am blown away by Guru's take on life, his precision thinking and words of wisdom on most everything. I promise you've never met anyone like him and You've never heard anything close to his insights on writing and creativity and what the heck is going on on this planet environmentally and between the sexes and on and on and on, including when and how to take cold showers with your hot showers and why. (laughs) Guru's background is insanely unique. He was a rock and roll singer slash guitarist, a rising recording star in the 60s who was best friends with and played with stars like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix before giving it all up to live in the desert with an undiscovered native tribe where he was buried alive many times for the purpose of touching multiple realities. His memoir, Buried Treasures, The Journey from Where You Are to Who You Are, takes you through this most mystical of heroes' journeys. Guru has requested that we don't have a co-host for this episode, so our chat can be a little more intimate. I am honored, and I can't wait. Get your pen and papers ready, if you're not driving, because your mind is about to be blown by this third-generation yogi and minister of Sikh Dharma, who is beautifully irreverent and so funny and so, so dear. Welcome. my friend. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy you're here. How long has it been that we have been friends? Well, I was thinking about that. It's been over 25 years. Oh my God. (laughs) That makes me feel so, I don't even know, old and young all at the same time. Because when I met you, Guru, I was, you were my age, right? You had brown hair, not white hair. You were my age. That's right. I think so, right? as, As a matter of fact, 25 years ago, I haven't really aged, so I'm still your age. (laughs) You know what? Perhaps I'm delusional, but I always felt like we were buddies. Even though I was coming to your office to learn, you always seemed a little bit entertained by how I just could not stick with yoga, and I couldn't stick with hardly any of the prescriptions you gave me. You would write down a breathing exercise or a yoga pose, and I would carry that little prescription out of your office filled with good intentions. And then I would go home and do none of them. Yeah, well, that's the nature of a free spirit. Mm. And a free spirit is the best writer there is. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you read the stories of any of the great writers, and you'll find that they all had, and also great composers and great painters, they all had very similar sensations. They were always free-spirited, and it is now diagnosed as dyslexia and ADD and all these things, but none of those things actually are real. It's just free spirit. Thank you for that. I like that. And it's also highly creative, too. Free spiriting is highly creative, so there's never a a lack of ideas. Oh, that makes me feel so good because I wasn't a great student in school. 
I found school incredibly boring. I mean, I loved what I loved about school was I loved the social interaction and I loved the athletics always. But I always felt when I was going to class that it was enormously important to be there. I felt like it was so valuable, the things I was learning about human interaction. To me, it was all about what am I going to learn today about how to get along with so-and-so or how to better connect with that guy I like or what are we doing here to build a community? To me, it was all about social. So when I started seeing you, I'm not technically religious. I'm very spiritual. My dad read to us from all the sacred texts growing up. I definitely identified with Christianity. I went to church on my own, loved church, still love it, still cry every time I walk into a church. But I'm not a strictly religious person. I've never felt totally comfortable with the whole idea of original sin. That just never made sense to me. I feel really uncomfortable with rules, but I very much loved going to your office. And I loved the discipline that you were trying to instill in me. But I did have a little bit of guilt when I would leave your office with your prescriptions and then I wouldn't do them. Yeah, well, you can get over the guilt because it's not a good teacher. Guilt doesn't really teach anything. But what you're describing there is pretty much the nature of all highly creative people. And that is that you're much more creative than the logical nature of school. You're much more creative than the logical nature of religion. And so school becomes a social environment, (laughs) which is very beautiful. You know, it's interesting because we learn in the first five years of life how to walk and how to talk. And then we get to school and they tell us to sit down and be quiet. Yeah, wow. And so this is very counterintuitive. But a creative person often finds regular schooling very boring and very tedious and also finds the way that religions have come to be portrayed and explained to be equally as tedious and boring. But that doesn't mean they don't have a relationship with the prophet, uh, whichever prophet they're uh, tuning to. Yeah, for sure. Let's actually have a discussion about original sin here, because it has a foundation, it has an origin, but it's been misused and misinterpreted and misrepresented for hundreds of years. So have you ever done something that was so outstanding that you got struck with fear after you had achieved it or after you had done it or after you had said it or after you had written it that I'm in a territory that I don't deserve to be in. I'm in a territory that I, I feel like a fraud. I don't really know what I say I know. and But you know what you know and you know it intuitively and therefore it's coming through you. But you don't have some kind of pedigree that has, you know, 10 PhD degrees So you feel a bit fraudulent. Has that ever happened to you? Sure. Okay. So when the monks, when these incredibly profound, dedicated monks were getting into the level of awareness that Jesus had and his disciples were getting into the awareness that he had, they started to feel fraudulent, like they were somehow, what would the word be? They were somehow... Plagiarizing. Yeah, plagiarism. They were somehow inappropriately working in an arena. And so they called that original sin. They said, that is what keeps us from him. That is what separates us from Jesus, the Christ, the master, the ascended one. And it's nothing more than what he broke through 
He had the same reality. He broke through it in the desert. Those were those 40 days of anguish that he was out there in the desert. And that's also what he broke through on the cross. And when he broke through it, he said, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That's what we yogis call the fraud factor and what Christians call original sin. It's the governing agent that doesn't allow you to evolve too rapidly. Because if you evolve too rapidly, it's actually mutation. And in mutation, since there's no direct history, it becomes such, and this is going to rhyme and sound weird, but (laughs) because there's no direct history, it becomes a mystery. And it becomes such a mystery that parents don't recognize their offspring because their offspring have evolved so far that they don't have any resemblance. To avoid that, evolution has this governing agent. And that governing agent is what Christians call original sin and what we yogis call the fraud factor. And it's that glass ceiling, so to speak, in a cliche metaphor. It's that glass ceiling that you bump up against when you are advancing extremely rapidly. And so to apply it to just everyone and say, oh, you got original sin and you were born a sinner was the bullshit that you didn't agree with. But the actual concept had a profound origin. Oh, that's so interesting. Because as I was saying, I love, love church. So I would take my son to church, especially this one in Eagle Rock. When we lived there, there was a rock and roll church. And you you walk in and it's like a U2 concert with just incredible celebration. And, you know, I would cry and we would dance and, oh, my God, love it. And I usually love the sermons. And then as soon as they would get to the, you're born a sinner, you're a sinner, I'm like, I would look over at my kid and I would think, yeah. Let's, I, get, I, out, let's, get, the, let's, get, the, let's get the out of here. Right? Oh, let's oh yeah. The, I was I, like, I cannot program this child to believe that he is inherently bad and we're out and we would go to brunch and we would keep trying. I mean, I still love church and I still go and I still leave when it gets too heavy. Yeah. Well, you know what you got to do? You got to create your own church. And that's why I call my Sunday morning class church Yeah, because we get rocking and rolling in there. Oh, yeah. And, and I'll tell you that the people back in India, they're not in their graves yet, but they're turning over in something because they don't approve it. You know, Christianity does not have a patent or a trademark on being hypocritical. Uh-huh. 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 You read my prayer post this morning and it's all about the hypocrisy of the code. Right. Everything was written in allegory and code in order to avoid the invasive eyes of the Roman army. And today, because you're translating, you know, allegory and code, you have no guidance for the translation. So people that wanted to use the Bible for power play, you know, use it to make you feel like a sinner. Yeah. And that's just using religion as politics. That's all it is. Oh my God, I love you. I love how rebellious and also studied you are. You know, back to the schooling thing, it made me feel stupid thinking that I was bored in class. I remember one time, one of my teachers, Senior Gomez, it was Spanish. I think it was Spanish too. He stopped the whole class and started yelling. And he was like, Senorita Tish, you're one of my smartest students, but you don't pay attention. What is wrong? 
And I was like, yeah. well, you know, I wanted to say, well, there's this really cute guy in the back and I'm writing a love letter to him. And I'm really concerned right now about astrology. I'd much rather talk about being a Virgo or being a Leo than this kind of stuff you're putting up on the board that I don't actually understand. So it made me feel stupid that my brain was always focused on something else. Right. Well, anybody that's listening to this podcast has to come to the realization that the brain that is always looking for something else is one of the most brilliant minds there is. Oh, you're kidding me. Tesla, Edison, Einstein, they all had brains that were always seeking something new, and that's why they were inventors. They were either inventors of ideas, or they were inventors of objects, or they were inventors of concepts. And that's what a writer is. A writer is an inventor. Even if you're writing nonfiction, you're an inventor of ways in which you're going to describe something. Because if, if you don't describe something in a super creative way, then people are not going to be enthusiastic or inspired by reading it. Mm. Mm. So it can either be fiction or nonfiction, but you have to be very creative and brilliant in the way in which you angle the view, the angle of the view that you take of the object that you're going to communicate about. Mm. You always blow my mind. I think I need to come visit you more often. <laughs> I don't see you enough. I think I saw you more when I lived in New Mexico. You know, for listeners who haven't heard me talk about New Mexico in the past, I very much wanted to leave Los Angeles. My husband at the time and I were really concerned that we were living a life that was too shallow, honestly. You know, LA can get challenging. My, my ex-husband was an actor and we were surrounded by a lot of wealth. I was a dog walker to celebrities and we were surrounded by wealth and beauty and a lot of fame. And it was complicated. We wanted a more spiritually grounded existence. We found that we were getting kind of gossipy. My ex-husband was really uncomfortable in traffic. You know, he was a little bit of a hair trigger. He doesn't mind me saying that. I've written about it. And so we went out in search of a deeper life and a calmer life. And we started studying with a medicine man in New Mexico who we bought a whole bunch of land from. And there was this spiritual community and guru... You have a spiritual community in New Mexico that you spend a lot of time with. And so you would drive up from your sanctuary up to us, I don't know, a couple of hours and come camp on our land. And those are some of the funnest memories I have of making you and your wife chai tea and just talking spirit in the forest with the medicine man and you. And this is the nature of you because the moment we would get out of the car, <laughs> you would be... You would be in that free spirit mode, <laughs> joking, joking with our names and having having a Linda event. Oh, my right? God. You mean like when I you would get out and I would hug you and I would call you goo and super goo and goo man chew and Q-tip head. Yeah. And I would remind you that goo meant darkness and ru meant light. And you better not just leave the darkness out there. <laughs> yeah. You were scolding me. You're like, Linda. Goo means darkness from which there is no light. And I would say, you don't want to see that side of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I got better, right? Didn't I get better? It didn't matter if you got better. It was all just fun. Well, It oh. was the same kind of fun that you would have at school, oh right? Oh, my God. So, so <laughs> you know, it's just the nature. It's, again, it's that free spirit nature. Oh. And, you know, if there's anything that people can gain from our conversation here today, and that is to allow yourself to be yourself. 
because as a writer, that's what you're here to be. You've got to be yourself. Otherwise, you're plagiarizing somebody else's work. But along the way, I really did capture so much of the things that I felt like helped me and worked. I mean, I was light and sage and I was light and incense and I was saying my prayers and I did. I had periods where I was <laughs> good at meditation. You know, I tried. Well, you know, the interesting thing that people must comprehend, and that is that meditation can be walking your dog. Meditation you. can be can be running in the woods. Meditation oh. can be swimming in the ocean. Meditation can be anything that you do with a connection to the moment. Because meditation is connecting to the moment. And in writing, that's what has to happen. You have to be able to connect into the moment. You have to be able to be the character or you have to be able to be the concept if it's nonfiction. Yeah. You have to be able to be that moment. Oh, God, I love it. And your prescriptions, Guru, they are so powerful. As you know, I sent several struggling girlfriends to you, very, very talented women who just hadn't caught a break or had had a lot of tough breaks. And they did the things that you said to do. They did the yoga poses and the breathing exercises and all those beautiful prescriptions. And I watched as their dreams came true, the love and the money and the creative fulfillment. And I don't think we'll say their names right now, but one wrote and released the number one song in America. I heard Casey Kasin raving about it the first time from A Lonely Country Road in New Mexico. Another starred in the top grossing movie of all time at that time and went on to huge other movies. And a third gal starred in her own long running television series that gave her enough money to live perhaps for the rest of her life. A fourth friend of mine got an Emmy for producing yet another hit television show. They all thanked me saying that it was what you did and what you taught them that helped them to catapult like that. Well, you know, it's interesting to have those kinds of responses to teachings that have been around for thousands of years. And if you think about you know, a number one selling song and a number one grossing movie. Just imagine the numbers of people that you've touched and have gone on to write books and have gone on to fulfill their dreams. And it's a, like a gigantic game of tag. And the only difference between, <laughs> between the tag in our childhood and this tag is that when you tag somebody, you're still it, and they're now it, so you're both it. And so what you live your life, Linda, as doing is equal to the lives of any of these other people, too, because everyone that we know and everyone that we've touched is out there touching more people. That's beautiful. Thank you. And, you know, you did get me up at 3 a.m. I mean, this was pretty incredible. So I've talked about the ambrosial hours. I've quoted you. First, in my first book, when I interviewed you for Lives Charmed, and you talked about the ambrosial hours for that book. And then Martha Beck and I talked with Glennon Doyle Melton on her episode a few months back about these ambrosial hours. I saw that you posted about these hours on Instagram, and I reposted it. Everyone, you can find Guru and his incredible Instagram posts that he, I mean, there's such wisdom nuggets every single morning over at Guru Singh Yogi. That's G-U-R-U-S-I-N-G-H-Y-O-G-I. And also on Facebook. 
because, and uh, I'll just say, you know, I, I did go to one yoga class. I went to a couple, but the very first yoga class I ever went to with Guru, uh, I dreamt about six books that night. I woke up at three in the morning, which is the start of the ambrosial hours from three to 5 a.m. I woke up at 3 a.m. with six books in my head, format, titles, uh, text, flowing text every single day. I took dictation at 3 a.m. and this went on for many months. So I will say that, Guru, you, that was the most profound effect that you had on me because those dang ambrosial hours wake me up still to this day. So I feel like that is one of the best ways to access creativity is to get up at 3 a.m., whether you're inspired to and you just wake up like I did for years or whether you set an alarm clock, which I ended up doing when my son was young and that was the only time really that I had to write. But can you talk about those ambrosial hours, Guru? Yes. You know, there's several different things that are available during the ambrosial hours and a couple of things that are unavailable. One of the things that's unavailable in the ambrosial hours are the distractions that are there all throughout the rest of our day. And so anybody that has ever gotten up early to do something finds that they can get multiples done during that time that they could do during other times of the day. One of the things that I describe in one of my books is the focus of the mind. And in Buried Treasures, I would climb this mountain every day with this man who was about 60 years older than me. So I was in my early 20s, and this man was in his middle 80s. And every day that we would walk up the mountain, he would beat me by almost half the time. In other words, if it took me four hours to get to the top of the mountains, it would take him two hours And I was so much stronger and I was so much more able to move quickly than he was. And I asked him and I asked him and I asked him and finally he described to me that when he was up walking up the mountain, all he was doing was walking up the mountain. And once you get that ability to focus, you can do things in half the time, in a quarter of the time. And there's so much more, not only efficient, but they're more effective. The words that you use are more effective. Mm. So in ambrosial hours, since there's nothing else going on, and since the visible rays of the sun are not stirring up all of the things that you think about, the things that you see, the things that you relate to, the people that you know, none of that is happening in your mind. Your mind is kind of a blank slate with the only thing that you need in the mind to be just what you're focused on, just what you want to do. So many writers, many musicians, many artists would get up early in the morning and utilize what are called the ambrosial hours, meaning the sweet hours of the morning, in order to achieve that which they couldn't achieve during the day. So this is powerful. Now, on the science side of it, for millions of years, we have been learning how to survive. But now we've developed these human instruments, these human qualities that can thrive rather than just survive. And what we must understand in our lives is that there is technology in this universe that is available for us to thrive, that is more than just having a job, getting a house, having food, 
having a car. These are all just extensions of our survival mode. The ambrosial hours are one of those mechanisms through which we can thrive because available in the ambrosial hours, available in these hours before the daylight comes and the infrared rays are there, the theta waves, these dream time waves in our brain, the same part of our brain that woke you up in the morning and gave you six book ideas. These parts of our brain are relating to the infrared rays of the sunlight. And if you're asleep, you don't know what's going on, but what happens in that relationship is you dream. Ah. But if you're awake during that time, what happens in that relationship is that you deep meditate or you dream while conscious, called lucid dreaming. And you can lucid dream while you're doing something else because it'll be playing just in the background. And in those hours before sunrise, two and a half hours before sunrise, these are the hours in which the greatest of ideas have always come. The photocopier was invented in these hours. The Mr. Land invented the Polaroid camera. Remember, it used to be called the Polaroid Land camera. Yeah. All great inventions. Tesla would find his greatest concepts in these hours. Edison would, Edison practiced lucid dreaming so that he could be active in these hours. He would sleep in his office. Einstein used this time. There are many musicians, Paul McCartney being one of them, who use the dream time and lucid dreaming to come up with melodies and and song lyrics, etc., etc. So all of the great artists and composers and writers have known uh, Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, would use two hours before the sunrise. He would always say, I'm good for two hours before the sun comes up. Yeah. And that's when he would do all of his writing. Yeah, that's what Glennon told us too. Well, so I have a question for you. Let's say that you're a mother, you've got a couple of kids, you're pretty exhausted, your life is already full. Maybe you work or maybe you're working around the home, which we all know how hard that is. What do you say to do for those people who are trying to access these hours? I know that what I did was I kept my diet really strict, as you know. I didn't put things in my body that made me exhausted. And even to this day, I'll say no to pie or ice cream. Not always. Sometimes I love binging. But a lot of times I say no. And people will look at me and say, well, why? You're not fat or why? You're skinny. And I'll say it has nothing to do with weight. I've never been concerned with calories. It has everything to do with energy. Because I know that if something knocks me out, not only can I not wake up early, but I'll be sleepwalking through my day. But what else besides diet do you tell people to do to help access these early morning hours when they've got a full life? Well, one thing that's very easy is if you drink a lot of water, a proper amount of water, you're going to have to get up early in the morning in order to pee. <laughs> in order to- now, just to be really practical. Okay, that's um, hilarious. Another thing is, is that don't eat anything sweet, like you were saying. Don't eat anything sweet after sundown, and yeah. that includes fruit. Because if you eat sweet after sundown, then what's going to happen is that your brain's going to be super active before going to sleep. It will not have enough rest by the time the ambrosial hours come around to be able to get up. And... Other things that are turning into sugar, which are like carbohydrates, 
you want to stay away from. So the only thing that you should eat, if anything, after sundown is like green leafy vegetables, you know, have a green drink. Mm. Mm. But diet is very important. Drinking lots of water is very important. But also what's equally important is to set an intention before you go to sleep. Yeah. When you're going to bed, when you're going to sleep, give yourself an assignment. And in that assignment, you are assigning your dreamtime brain, your dreamtime mind, a command. You're telling it that you're going to wake up early. And when you wake up, you're going to have these ideas that you're going to immediately be writing. And, you know, this is why the artist's way talks about morning pages. It's why all the great writers and composers and artists would talk about how the early morning hours are the only hours that are truly available to be deeply creative. And that is because that early morning time coordinates the universal mind with your mind so that you have access. It's like having access to the Internet. You have access to the vast reaches of universal concepts and universal ideas and answers to questions and solutions to problems. So if you give yourself that assignment before going to bed, then it will help you get up in the morning. And, you know, your original question was about what about, uh, you know, a mom that has children or a person that has obligations and they have so much going on in their schedule that they're exhausted. Yeah. Well, the answer is to go to bed earlier and you can't do it all at one day. You have to start working yourself. Like if you start going to bed 15 or 10 minutes earlier and then next week you go to bed 10 minutes earlier and then the next week you go to bed 10 minutes earlier, in three weeks you're going to bed a half an hour earlier. And that half an hour earlier is going to give you a lot more rest because the sun's energy, as the earth is rotating, the sun's energy is coming towards you after midnight, but it's going away from you before midnight. So the kind of sleep that you get before midnight is worth multiples Whoa. of the amount of the kind of sleep that you get after midnight. So in order to get up early in the morning in the ambrosial hours, my wife and I have to go to bed between 9 and 10. Uh -huh. and the closer to nine that we go to bed, the better off we are. You remember when you were in New Mexico, you know, when the sun went down, you know, yeah. you had candlelight, you had you had a few things to keep light, but you got tired and you went to bed earlier. Yeah, and I really yeah. understood that whole going to bed with the sun and waking up with the sun. It really made sense to me. I mean, the biggest light we had was a starscape, which was so close. As you remember out there, we were so high up, almost, what, eight or 9,000 feet up elevation. But we also had the full moon. And, you know, we were solar for, well, we were off the grid for a long, we had no solar for a long time and then finally had some solar. But it really made it easy to go to sleep when you had no television. Right. And these fake lights are one of the things that actually I'm going to be writing about in a, in a day or two, is that when you're working with like firelight or candlelight, yeah. shadows, the mind for millions of years, well, for since about a million and a half years or a million and three quarters years, creatures of, you know, two-legged creatures, whatever we want to call them, precursors to humans, we're using firelight. We're mm -hmm. using fire. And fire casts a kind of a shadow. And candles cast a kind of a shadow. Sure. 
But when you have a room filled with incandescent lights, there are no shadows. Everything is lit, backlit, frontlit, toplit, bottomlit. So the brain that has been functioning in a world of shadows is suddenly confused because it's only been out of the world of shadows for the last, say, 120 years. Yeah, not long. And so the human brain is more accustomed to the shadows of firelight and natural light. And so that's another reason why when you get up in the morning earlier and you start to use the infrared light of the sun, which is an invisible light, you start to be able to access those deep recesses of your genetic history, of your cosmic history. This is where the true creativity comes from. This is where I've written every one of my books. This is where everybody writes from. So would you recommend that somebody who's waking up at three in the morning like I did for so many years and pulling up their computer, which does emit a little bit of light, would you recommend that they light a candle as well like I used to do? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. No kidding. Bring in some nature. What we do every morning when we get up is we light the fireplace and that gives us that sensation of our ancient uh, history and our ancient mastery. And it's interesting because a computer screen is so large, I wrote an entire book on my Blackberry like 15 years ago. I wrote an entire book on my Blackberry in the ambrosial hours because the screen light was smaller and it didn't disrupt my brain. No kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, can we talk? I want to talk about buried treasures now that we're talking about books. This book is, the subtitle is The Journey from Where You Are to Who You Are. This is your memoir, and it is stunning. Guru, you self-published this, which shocked me because you and I had started working. I mean, you were working on it. I was giving you notes back 20-something years ago. And then it was so odd because right before this came out, a couple, two years ago, I had been thinking about it. It was on my mind and on my mind, which is why I made the appointment with your wife to come see you. I hadn't been to your place in four or five years. I come and I sit down and I'm like, God, I wonder what's happened to that book. Why hasn't he put that book out? Where is that book? And I was all excited thinking, I'm going to go rail on him. We're going to get this sucker done and I'm going to get it sold because I, you know, I know a few people, right? I can, I can get this book to a few people. And sure as shit, you had already published it that day. I and mean, it was just coming out that day, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, there was a big synchronicity in your timing there. That was ridiculous. But why the heck didn't you give it to me so that I could help you get it to a publisher? You just wanted to get it out right then and there. Is that it? I am like you. And that is that I'm very free spirited. <laughs> and, so, and so for me to put up with an editor that is going to question the way in which I punctuate, the way in which I phrase, <laughs> yeah. is more pain than I'm willing to uh, tolerate. Oh, well, you did such a beautiful job. This book is stunning. And everyone that I know who's read it, I was at a party not too long ago, and I didn't even know half the people in the room. But, you know, it was Brentwood, and it was a lot of spiritual, awesome L.A. people, like the best of L.A., right? That's why people love L.A., because there's so many open-minded, spiritual, freewheeling, awesome people in this town. And I'm in this room, and somebody starts talking about buried treasures and how amazing it is. And I was, I was like, wait, wait, I know Guru. And it turned out half the freaking room knew you, Guru. Half the room had read it. Everybody was raving about it. So 
you know, it took you a long time to get it done, but boy, did you do a beautiful job. It's such a, it's a riveting read, really. I could not put it down. And that's the, I've heard that from so many people who don't know you. So it's true. You can't put it down. I've gotten a lot of comments from people that thank me for giving them sleepless nights. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, they couldn't put it down. And so they stayed up all night reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not your usual book. I mean, here you are. You are a rock star. You had hit albums on the radio. Janis Joplin's your best friend. You're playing with Jimi Hendrix. You're like major, major up and comer or making it at the time. And then you bail. You bail on everything. Right. This is the 60s. This is the Vietnam War. You are like a total counterculture guy. You bail on the whole thing and go live with a undiscovered hidden Native American or or Native group of Indians in the desert and get buried alive to find yourself. (laughs) Can you explain that? Yeah, it was, uh, I was a little bit like the Studebaker, which means that I was the car that everybody would want in 10 years. And so my attitude towards the war, my attitude towards music was a little bit earlier than anybody was willing to put up with in those days. And so it was at the very beginning of, you know, we're talking about 1966 here. And so it was the very beginning of the anti-war movement. And the FBI moved in on those few of us that were very active in it. And the FBI is basically what uh, shut me down because they went to the FCC and said, you got to pull this guy's music off the radio. It's it's too revolutionary. And so I really had no choice. You can find out the greater details. Yeah, yeah I don't want to give book. it away. But I really had no choice. So, you know, as happens in the lives of anyone who's a free spirit, one thing leads to another. <laughs> and I end up in the deep outback of the Copper Canyons in central Mexico. And that is where I learned a great deal about the things that I had been studying as a child in yoga, because I've been a yogi since birth, and the things that I've been learning since through yoga. And so what it gave me was the reality that all of the indigenous, all of the natural people on the earth, whether they were yogis from India or indigenous people from the Americas, even the man uh, Thomas One Wolf that that you studied with in New Mexico. Yeah, my man. Every one of these people is tapped into the same truth. And that's where writers tap into. Writers tap into that truth by becoming free and creative. Because when you let your mind run and have that freedom, it's like a vision quest. Oh, nice. Because in a vision quest, the vision quest that I was on in Buried Treasures, the vision quest that you've been on when you lived in New Mexico, yeah. In these circumstances, your mind is having to operate outside of any reality that it's known. So it has no history, no memory to access. And it only has that creative power to look forward. And that's why these moments in a writer's life, in a painter's life, in a musician's life are so profound when you can actually get yourself into that state of Forget, is this good? Just lay it all out there on the paper and allow the paper 
to absorb your thoughts and your thoughts and your thoughts and your thoughts. And it's such a profound process. And, you know, one of the things that I find in working with so many people is that the common obstruction is witnessing the self. When you are in a vision quest setting, you're not witnessing yourself because you're so connected to yourself that there's no energy left for you to look at yourself. Yeah, yeah. It is that witnessing of yourself. It is that observing of yourself rather than just being yourself that stifles the creativity, particularly for the written word because You know, the written word going down on the page, if you start reading your words as you're writing your words, you're in trouble. (laughs) Oh, that's so true. Yeah. You got to just lay it out there and lay it out there and just figure you'll come back to it later or you'll let somebody else come back to it. But you really have to just pour it onto the page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I actually was, as you know, Thomas One Wolf put me into physical vision quests and my ex-husband, he'd stick us out into the middle of the forest and he'd surround us with this, well, he'd have us make a sort of, I don't even know what to call it, a thread, a very, very long thread of tobacco. It was woven with string and we'd use this big circle to kind of delineate our little safe space. And then he put my ex-husband who was dealing with some anger issues at the time. I thought this was hilarious. Put him on an anthill, a red anthill. So he'd get bitten, <laughs> which he thought was hilarious too. I mean, he handled it with a great attitude. And we'd sit in these vision quests by ourselves in the forest, in the rain, in the wind, in the heat. And it was really scary. And I think back on that and I think, wow, I don't know if that was crazy or not. It was certainly, I imagine, a little bit dangerous, but I felt like I was safe. And I felt like, you know, you have this section in Buried Treasures on page 270 where you're talking about how you were buried basically alive. I mean, obviously, you were able to breathe. But you said, they explained that each burial cleared away a tiny bit more of the emotional slavery. Your very base emotions protected you as an animal, but they do nothing for you as a human. This, uh, your teacher's saying to you, as a human, you must perceive beyond the chaos and the sensations. And then you talked about whatever you would fear when you were being buried. And I noticed the same thing when I was in Vision Quest. Whatever you fear, the emotions instantly manifest their likeness. So fear creates the fearful and anger creates the angry. And I love this part where you say people look for struggle because it makes them feel like they're accomplishing something. They're kind of used to struggle. And this is the way of the world today. But it is not always that way. Our world does not identify with struggle. And so as masters of ourselves, we learn that we are not the slave. I, I just it's, it's all so profound, Guru. I think we could talk about that for hours, just that little piece. Yes, we have to understand that we identify more profoundly with what we're struggling to achieve than what is easy to achieve. And if you can imagine if your identity is more important than your, than your achievement, then you're going to struggle and may never achieve what you're dreaming of. But if you make your achievement more important than your identity, 
then whether you struggle or not is immaterial because you're developing and producing your achievement. And you will find that when you study any very, very successful person, that they had to attach some greater meaning to their achievement than they did to their own identity. Oh my God, that makes so much sense to me that you're saying this right now, because I've had conversations with people who are very logical, who are not attached to Hollywood, which is where I've lived for so long. They're not attached to the creative sort of space that we dreamers live in, right? And they say to me things like, Linda, but you've chosen a hard path. You know, if you had taken your brain and worked in the corporate field, you would have had a regular income. You would be, you'd have a much bigger IRA by now. And I'm like, what? But you don't understand. Like, my soul would die if I wasn't creating the things I'm creating. And and they're not for money. Like, I was happy living in a one room. For much of my marriage, my husband and I lived really, really simply. We lived in a cabin. Or we lived in a one room in Beverly Hills where I was a maid during the day and he would do handyman work in exchange for the time to be able to be full-time parents in our little tiny world. And as long as I was writing and being able to express myself and put ideas out there that I felt were important for the planet, I didn't care. I mean, I figured ultimately I'd probably live easier, but it didn't really matter. And now you're making sense. You're putting that into context for me. I've never understood that. Yes, and this is why the path of creativity is so fulfilling because we put more energy into what we are creating than the struggle that it takes to create it. Wow. And ultimately, we become very, very skilled and the capacity to develop word strings, right, which every book is built on, just one word string after another, one phrase after another, one idea after another, the capacity to allow these things to come in is so available to us that to sit down and write is just natural. It's as natural as sitting down to have dinner. It's like somebody who's very creative in cooking can come into a kitchen and find a few items in the fridge and on the shelves and make a meal. Yeah. Another person that is more concerned about the identity of themselves within that kitchen is going to be struggling and finding it impossible (laughs) to make anything happen. Mm. And so, you know, what we are as writers is we are those cooks in, you know, in the kitchen of words. And in doing so, We're putting them together in whatever way. And by the way, you know, going back to your previous question, that's also why I would resist any, you know, publishing company, you know, unless they gave me some tremendous freedom, only because I'm not giving this as a prescription to other people, but I'm just explaining in myself because the idea of somebody taking these free flowing word strings and saying, you know, it doesn't really say what I what people are going to need you to say is going to perhaps give me doubts. And then if I have doubts in the present moment, I will apply doubts to the future moments. And that's one thing that a writer cannot have. A writer has to believe that their work is the best work that's ever been written because that opens up the inspiration channel. Says you cannot write if you're in desperation, right? And desperation means without spirit and inspiration means with spirit. And your spirit entering your body has to believe that your life is the best life that could ever be. And so as a writer, you need to represent that spirit. 
of I'm the best writer, this is the best thing that's ever been written. Because if you don't, the vibration of your writing is going to be in there, in that book, in that yep. ebook, in whatever. And that's what's going to be absorbed by the reader. Now, who wants to read something that turns them off? <laughs> who wants to read something that makes them feel like shabby? You know, this is shabby. I feel shabby. Oh, I love Linda Sievertson because whenever I read her work, I just feel so shabby afterwards, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, is that going to be a bestseller? Huh? Yeah. Is that going to be real? Come on. Don't kid yourself. Oh. So if writing is work, right? If writing is work, oh, I struggled through three pages today, but I got them down. If writing is work, uh, you're not writing. You're just you know, excruciating and don't think that anybody is going to get anything out of it except excruciating pain. Okay, wait, wait, I have to push back on that for a second, Guru, because some of the greatest writers and Elizabeth Gilbert calls for a change on this one. She's like, whoa, people, we have to really rethink the agony of creativity. But we have a whole history of brilliant writers. Some of our best-selling writers of all time talk about how miserable the process is. And yet they do sell and they sell en masse. Yeah, and that's because it's the best misery that has ever been experienced. <laughs> okay. Because it, we're not talking about this is miserable misery. The best-selling writers that wrote in misery were usually drunkards, right? They were usually Hemingway. alcoholics. Yeah. And their misery was so intense that it allowed people to read that misery and go, well, my shit's not that bad. <laughs> I hear you. And, you know, so even in misery, it was the greatest misery that yeah. ever existed. So yeah. I'm not saying that you're writing and it's, oh, it's all love and flowers and, and great this and great that. No. But when you're writing, it's got to be the most and understand that, you know, misery writers are a unique breed and it's not a lifestyle that, you know, I would idolize, although I know that it has to be there. It's just like if you build a house, you have to have a kitchen and you have to have a bathroom and, you know, your bathroom is where, you know, all of the waste goes and your yeah. kitchen is where all the nutrients are. So everything has to have a balance. So there has to be agony and misery in order to have the ecstasy and inspiration. I'm just saying that if you're writing about it, it has to be the best. And you have to think it's the best. And you have to think you're the most miserable that anyone has ever existed as. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I always tell people to write when they're bleeding. You know, don't publish when you're bleeding, but write there. Because some of the best things I ever wrote about my divorce were when I was in the biggest amount of pain. I think that when the reader reads that, and they're maybe going through the same thing, they can completely relate. They can say, oh my God, it's not just me. This person gets it and shows me a way through, hopefully. In addition to writing while you're, you know, bleeding, as yes. you said, there's an old saying that when you're in your greatest anger, when your greatest agony, when your greatest jealousy and your greatest whatever bolt your butt to the mat. Oh, yeah. Because that's the time when you will have your most profound meditative experience. But you have to hold on because it's a rough ride. It's a little bit like taking one of those rubber boats through the rapids of uh, the Rio Grande, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to do a little intermission. Uh, this is kind of rapid fire. Whatever pops into your head first. All right. So L.A. or Seattle? Um, what do you mean? <laughs> Which do you prefer? 
I prefer Guru Singh. Yeah? What does that mean? That means that wherever I am, I'm inside me. And so the nature of geography doesn't really matter. People used to say to me in, back in the day, how can you stand being in L.A.? And I'd say, I'm not in L.A., I'm in Guru Singh. Oh, I love it. Okay, dogs or cats? Uh, both. You've always had a crazy house of all of it. All right, lentils or beans? Either one. It's great protein. And, um, you know, each one for their own particular purpose I've even had, uh, you know, lentil tacos, you know, and that's been wonderful. Uh-huh. And by the way, dogs or cats, horses or goats, you know, sheep or cows, you know, they're all domesticated animals. They all love humans. So yeah. I, I, you know, I love them all. Mm, agreed. All right. Chai tea or orange juice? Ha <laughs> ha Both, but for different reasons. You know, orange juice to wake up my cells and chai tea to wake up my brain. Oh, nice. All right, wearing all white or mixing it up with a wild splash of color? I wear all white underneath my color. <laughs> and, you know, I'm into a, about three main colors that I work with on top because color is therapy. There's a frequency in color. And so I wear orange for creative energy. I wear blue for intuition, and I wear maroon for calm. Nice. And white, and I pronounce it with the H, and everybody teases me because of that. <laughs> white is a color that has all the colors, and so sure. I wear that. I wear white for balance. But, you know, I honor the Tibetan Buddhists with, um, with maroon and orange, and I honor the Sikhs with orange and blue. And those are the traditions that gravitated towards those colors. But they all have a particular reason. And I don't tend to wear black because black is too deadening for me. But some people need that color. So I don't presume to say that what I choose for my own body is right for everybody. Yeah. It's interesting. And- when I see you, I often wear white. And sometimes orange. You and I usually wear orange at the same time, which is always funny to me. But I, I love black. Black to me makes me feel contained within myself. There's a safety and a container in black that makes me feel very, very good. And that is absolutely appropriate. And that's why I say anybody that says, oh, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that is looking at your world through their view. And that's the key to good writing is that you have to look at the world through your character's views. Because if you look at the world through your view all the time, you're not going to get a good picture of the world. Yeah. And so for me to say to you, oh, but wearing black deadens your, you know, blah, 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 is telling you what it would do to me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that's good for you to know, but it's not good for you to follow. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I listen to you say why you love to wear black, and that intrigues me because because I listen to that and I say, ah, you know, there's a reason for being in a cave, and there's a reason for being on top of a mountain, Mm. and both of them have valid reasons, and they're at different points in your life, you need one or the other. Uh Now, I'll tell you, I would sleep in black. Because when I'm asleep, 
I want to be fully contained. Yeah. Got and it. so I'm not saying that when you're in black, you're asleep. Don't, you know, don't mix the metaphors. What I'm saying is that for me, having that beauty and that sense in which I respect what you said, that feeling of security and containment is something that I would want to feel when I, and I, if I was wearing black to bed, I'd wear a black hoodie. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would pull it up over my head and want to even pull it down over my face. And I'll take it even one step further now that I'm thinking about it because I do wear black so often. It's in the safety and the containment and the security that I feel that I can go bigger. So when I wear black, I not only feel safe and secure, but I feel big. And that is beautiful. That's the balance of physics, right? The polarities equal and opposites. And so you're fully contained and you're fully exposed simultaneously. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. Uh, normally, we're a little risque around here, and we ask about sleep or sex, but I cannot do that with you, Guru, so it just doesn't feel right. So I'm going to ask about this one, meditation or sleep? Well, deep meditation gives you the same benefit as sleep on a psycho-emotional level, but it doesn't give you the same benefit as sleep on a physical level, mm. and so... If I have had a lot of deep meditation, then I will not dream. I will fall to sleep and immediately be in a delta state. And when I come out of sleep, I will come out of the delta state almost in a straight line. And so I won't pass through the dream time because my dream time has been satisfied. You know, the need for my psycho-emotional bodies to be satisfied in dream time uh, and to be nourished in dream time took place in my deep meditation. Got it. All right. Cold shower or hot one? Both. <laughs> you do take hot showers? I thought you were just cold. No, no, no. Um, if you don't take a hot shower, your skin doesn't open up and you don't circulate the deep oils out of your pores. So because if you always take cold showers, your skin closes and your insides open up, cold showers. And that's the purpose of cold showers. And so what I do is I take a warm or hot shower, and then I follow it up with a cold shower. That's what I Which do. is then going to close off my skin, yep. make me ready for the day. But also the deeper and more important component is that it's going to drive my blood into the center core of my glands and organs, which flushes them out. And then that way I'm cleansing both the outer body, which is the hot water, and then I'm cleansing the inner body, which is the cold water. Great. And it's important that the cold water shower be as long as the hot water one was. Oh, Otherwise, dude. Don't tell me oh, that. Dude. Oh, dude. <laughs> that oh, dude. sucks. Yeah, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's the reality of physics. So, oh. dude, live with it. <laughs> <laughs> deal with it jeez oh, that deal with it and get over it that pisses me off okay never mind I'm not asking you any more questions about this stuff all right so when exactly do you let your hair down guru at night going to bed so I want to give just a quick little thing you use the turban as an antenna is that correct well I use the hair as an antenna you know and the turban keeps it there so you wrap your hair on top of your head so that the antenna is 
you know, like an antenna. It's, it's, you know, in the old days when your cars actually had antennas, <laughs> right. And, you know, you turned on your car, if you turned on the radio, the antenna would come up, right. It would rise up. Yeah. And, you know, so that it could get the signals and, it's not so much the hair as it is the hair follicle and the root of the hair that is embedded in the fascia because the true antenna of your body is not so much the hair as it is the, the hair root and the fascia. And when the hair dangles, it is not hyperactivating the fascia of your skull. You know, the largest fascia in the body runs from the bottom of the feet up the back of the legs, up the middle of the back, and up over the crown of the head and into the forehead. And that's the fascia that's the largest antenna in your body. Antenna to what? To spirit? To antenna to the electromagnetic field outside of you, which is your aura, which is then connected to the electromagnetic field of the earth which is then connected to the electromagnetic field of the solar system, which is then connected to the electromagnetic field of the galaxy, which is then connected to the electromagnetic field of the universe, which is then connected to the electromagnetic field of the megaverse, which is then connected to the electromagnetic fields of the multiverse. And it's like a gigantic system of Wi-Fi that literally connects you to the largest portion of the universe possible. And that's where the information is, right? You want to connect to the largest database of information possible and then take away your thought process, which is what deep meditation does, so that you can absorb the information, which is not going to be in language, and then you can put it into language through your neutral mind and then assemble it into ideas. You read how is the photocopier invented? Yeah. How did Einstein come up with his theories? How did Tesla come up with his ideas? How did any great inventor come up with the ideas of something that had never been done before and they figured out how to do it? But they weren't that wearing was, turbans, Guru. That was done through the universal mind. Okay, I gotcha. And it's easier to access the universal mind when you develop a strong antenna. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, you know, just wearing turbans. Don't let me sell turbans. Just wearing turbans is not the only way. Stretching into your body glove through yoga is another way. Yeah. Going into deep meditation in cold water, like the ocean swimmers is a way, you know, the deep divers yeah. is, is a way. Taking walks in the forest is a way. Riding your horses mm. is a way. Mm. So all of the above, walking with your dogs, snuggling with your cats, meeting yeah. your goats, whatever you do to tune out the noise and tune into reality is a way. And, you know, I think you make a really strong argument for the intelligence and the tapped inness that's possible. I remember when years and years ago you introduced me to Guru Mook, who I call, <laughs> who I reverently call Mookie. And Guru Mook, I did pregnancy yoga with her, what, like 26 years ago. And one day she shows up in the middle of the forest, unannounced, knocks on my door. I guess she had given her the, the map through the maze of dirt roads to my house, knocks on the door. And I opened it and had no idea who she was because her hair was to her butt. I had never seen her in anything but a white turban. So I did ask her at the time, why is your hair down? Like, what's the deal? 
But tell me, when in the world would a Sikh wear their hair down? What would be the reason for that? Is it just ease or is there some kind of benefit as well? Sun. She was probably drying her hair in the sun. She probably washed her hair and was drying it in the sun because hair absorbs vitamin D from the sunlight. Okay. So my point about Guru Mook and the forest guru is just that the two of you who happen to wear turbans much of the time are probably two of the most intelligent people I've ever known. So something about that antenna, I think, is working. Well, yes, the antenna is not only intelligence, but it's intuition. And most of real intelligence comes from intuition, comes from knowing what you know, but it hasn't ever been known before. All right. So I want to go to Buried Treasure for a minute, your book. You are reliving, towards the beginning of the book, you're living, reliving one of your three near-death experiences. And a woman from another dimension is talking to you. And she says something so beautifully profound. She says, don't live your life logically, live it mythologically. What did those words mean to you then? And how have they shaped your life? They meant to me then and still mean to me now that I am a mythological character in the play of history. And just like any mythological character, I have magical powers. Now, my life's work is to realize my magical powers, just like the quest in any mythological tale is always about the hero's journey, right? Yep. Looking and searching and going through great challenges in order to find those magical powers that we all possess because life is magical. Yes. I mean, you know from giving birth to Tosh that life is magical. No doubt. And so what we have limited ourselves to in today's world is the world of logic. You know, even science has a double blind study to determine whether or not something works. Well, what about faith? What about, you know, faith is not a double blind study. What about trust? Trust is not a double blind study. What about commitment? Commitment is not a double-blind study, and most of intuition has no proof. And so if you're going to develop these higher powers of faith and trust and commitment and intuition, then you have to live your life mythologically rather than just logically. I'm not saying don't be logical. There's times... When I'm driving a car, if I'm not logical, if I'm being mythological and I'm driving my car, then every other car better get off the road. (laughs) But when I'm living my life and thinking about what I want to be and do in my life, then I had better add some tremendous mythology to my logic in order for me to truly fulfill my faith, trust, commitment, intuition, love, joy, and any of the other things that have no logical basis. Mm-hmm. Mm. Beautiful. Um, I want to go to page 98 of Lives Charmed. 
to your interview, you said, I mean, really, I would love to be able to read this whole chapter out loud because the things that you talk about, especially on fame, which I want to get to after this, but the things that you say are so cutting edge and freaking fascinating. One of the things you say on 98, you say, most of humanity is ignorant to their higher conscious mind, except that they have a vague, often impersonal relationship with an avatar, Jesus, Buddha, or someone else. If I have a relationship with somebody, I had better be able to sit on their lap, whisper in their ear, and express my feelings. It's not enough for me to have an intellectual sense of a being somewhere off in a distant realm. Spirituality must be felt from the heart. Like in African-American churches, you want some good music? Those people will show you how to sing to God. So my question to you is, Guru, do you still have that relationship that you want? And I mean, are you still in love? Yes, I am still in love. I have that relationship with everything and everyone that I love. And that's why earlier in this conversation that we are having, when you asked me about being, you know, so open and upfront, and I said to you that Without being open and upfront, there's no relation. Yeah. And without a relation, there's no experience. And without an experience, there's no reality. There's a fantasy. There's a theoretical idea of God or of religion or of whatever, even relation. But there's no reality. You've got to be able to say, hey, I have a question about what you said. I heard you say this, this, and this. Did you mean or does it mean or what does it mean? Yeah. And that's why a relationship with divinity, however that is to unfold, whether you're Zen Buddhist and there can be no such thing as a being, or you're a Christian and there is a being that gave birth to a earthly being. Yeah. It is immaterial what form of those you have, but whatever that form is, you had better have an experiential relationship that can be intimate. In my book, let me not try to make it everyone's book, but in my relationship, I have got to be able to sit on your lap, whisper in your ear, and get an answer in my ear. Otherwise, it's just fantasy. Yeah. And I'm not saying that fantasy is inappropriate, but if it's the only thing that you're getting, then there's no nutrition because the fantasy of food has no nutrition. If you want (laughs) nutrition out of food, you better eat it, chew it, swallow it, digest it, eliminate the waste, and absorb the nutrient. Yeah. And just think about it. Just think about it. In a rock church, like what you were saying earlier, in a rock and roll church or in a black church or in a, you know, in a Native American, a Nipi ceremony. Oh, yeah. You know, you are feeling what you're experiencing. Heck, yeah. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You did that in Nipi with us a bunch. God, we did a Nipi every Sunday for five years. My my little kid tending fire as a five-year-old bringing in the hot stones. And yeah. there, there was nothing 
like it. I remember one time we had such a bad drought in New Mexico. Remember, it didn't rain. The whole state didn't rain for a year. And the governor called it, there was a state of emergency and there was a day of prayer. Remember that? All the Pueblos, all the the Native Americans were doing their dances, their corn dances and everything else. And we went out there with Thomas and we did a fireway and we did that in Nipi and we prayed for rain. And sure enough, Boom! I mean, that thunder and lightning rocked our little Anipi so strong. We opened the flap and the sky was black. The blackest clouds I had ever seen. And it rained everywhere. You remember that? I do. I do. Talk about magic. And that's the the power of experiential prayer, which is certainly not intellectual. It's certainly not a fantasy. It deals with the fantastic, but it is experiential. You know what? This is the perfect place I want to talk about fame for a minute. Back in Lives Charmed, you, one of my favorite parts of our interview was when you talked about people attaining fame and how they had to stretch into this very courageous way of life to do it. And you said, in order for someone to accelerate their life in such a way as to be well-known, Most experiences are heightened, positive and negative. Unless the work of clearing inner demons is accomplished, problems will arise in some way. Many celebrities have to deal with public humiliation, tabloid scandals, anything else. And for those who don't create an outer manifestation of their inner turmoil, the ridicule comes from the inside. And then you go on to say the powers right now of the media are clear. There are more opportunities than ever for being discredited. People have to be able to accelerate through those discredits without dwelling on them. Now, Liz Gilbert and Brene Brown have told us in these interviews that they don't read their interviews. They don't go online and look at the comments. They don't even go to Amazon and see the comments because it's so disruptive. And since you've said this in Live's Charm Guru, that's been a long time. It's been, I don't even remember, 15 years. Look at how much worse the media has become. So my question to you is, for people listening to us who are writing bestsellers and dreaming about bestsellers, but they're a little afraid of this shit because there's a lot of craziness out there. How do we center ourselves and continue to put out work in the world from a place of courage and real strength? Well, I'll say in response, just like what we were talking about, rain. If you go out in the rain and you're not in your bathing suit or in something <laughs> or in something that is going to be okay with water, then you had better shield yourself. And therefore, the way in which you shield yourself is to deflect those comments that are going to take you down. Yeah. And that means that you have to have strong self-talk because anybody can say anything. Yeah. And people will read your work as a writer through their eyes, through their ears, through their inner voice. Sure. And they will be interpreting it through their experiences. Yeah. And therefore, they will be responding and commenting and critiquing, not through the gospel of God, but through the reality that they've experienced. And therefore, you have to be able to have a shield that 
allows you to experience their comments, experience their critiques without being stabbed to death by them if they're negative. Yeah. And also without being, you know, uplifted by them to the point where it's unrealistic if they're positive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what the Buddha called the middle path, which is the path in which there are no extremes. Just, um, you know, like people in commenting about, you know, my book, Buried Treasures, you know, like out of all of the Amazon comments, you know, there was like a minuscule number of negatives. Yeah. And those negatives I wanted to read. I wanted to know what, why people didn't like it. And I thought to myself, how curious they thought this, how curious they felt that because I was listening to it through my neutral mind, which is the curious mind is the mind of a child. Yeah. And I wasn't taking them on as burdens. I was taking them on as perspectives. And I thought, Oh, that's fun to know that somebody can look at my work, which, you know, took forever to write. And, <laughs> and just you know, 20 years, Guru, what's the big deal? And somebody actually read the book <laughs> while feeling this way about the book. And I wanted to respond to the people that had, you know, negative critiques about my book is going, wow, I so admire the fact that you read it from beginning to end and felt this way, you know? Yeah. That's not something I could do. If I felt this way about a book, I'd close it within 10 pages. <laughs> exactly. And so I admire your courage and your strength and your keep up because you kept on going, hoping that there was going to be something else that was going to shift your view. And so that's how I look at negative critique. I love it. Okay. I want to talk about gender for a minute here. You also, in Life's Charm, you say, the civilization of man is one big family. Men and women are in the same boat. Often men want to think our boats are separate and keep women out, but because women are paddling just as hard, it's only going to help us all get where we're going faster. Men have constructed a fake world in order to wall and cage women out. We know that if women enter our world of male-oriented business, it's all over. What we've been doing for the last few centuries would be exposed as ridiculous, and the competition of the male world would give way to compatibility. This is why the Japanese have been so powerful in business. They work with compatibility rather than competition. So what do you think now? I mean, based on this election, right, we've seen such a dichotomy of the voters. Okay, so we had, they said that if men only had voted, Trump would have gotten, I don't know, I think it was like something like 85% of the votes that were cast. And if only women had voted, it would have been a landslide for Hillary. Are we still polarizing men and women? Well, the answer is in your statement. It's so obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious. And where do you see this going? Well, here's what happens. The darkness is just before the dawn. You and I remember those mornings, those cold mornings out in New Mexico where it wasn't as cold as it ever was until just before the crack of yes, dawn. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. And that's what's happening here. The male patriarchy, which is all about patriotism. Patriotism means obey the king. And, you know, maybe the king's an asshole. And, you know, I don't believe in dying for the truth. 
I believe in living for the truth. I don't believe in patriotism. I don't believe in defending borders. I believe in accommodating people. The idea of this male patriarchy that is all about borders and boundaries and this is mine and get away from mine and we've got our own country and stay out of our, you know, this is so passe. The young kids that go to our school in India come from all over the world and not one of them considers themselves to be a citizen of a particular country. Yeah. They consider themselves to be global citizens. Yeah. But that's what complicated. A what a global citizen does is it makes sure that everything is working everywhere. What a patriot does is make sure that everything is working really good where they are. <laughs> well, sorry, Charlie, and I don't want to offend any Charlies that listen to this, but sorry, people. The reality is that it's one world and whatever is only good in one place is going to come back and bite your ass. And it may take some years, but we're at that point now where those years are closing in on us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as it says in Zen, when a butterfly flaps its wings in Japan, the wind blows in Brazil. Well, then I think I'll end on this one statement that you made at the end of your interview back, gosh, when did we do this? 1997. You said the consciousness of this planet is going to be so accelerated that people are going to be clear on what they will and won't accept from the destruction of our mother. It's similar to a child or a teen feeling that he can abuse his mom, but when he gets to be 28 or 30, he may think, ah, well, mom wasn't right on, but she wasn't that bad either. As each of us becomes older and wiser, the movement of consciousness becomes older and wiser. All people will eventually know what it feels like to be at the tip of the arrow, leading charmed lives. So you're saying you got hope, right? We just have to hang on? Yes, I'm saying that what's happening now is literally the death throes of patriotism, the death throes of the patriarchy. And it's the darkness before the dawn, and it is the last gasp. You know those death throes when the yeah when saw my mom do it. Is, yes, and the body just reaches out for one last gasp. Yeah, and that's what has happened here. And what we have to recognize is that it's not about confronting that one last gasp. What it is about is connecting with like hearts and like minds. Yeah, that feels good because I don't, I don't feel good when I'm angry. I don't feel good when I'm making it an us versus them scenario. I don't, I mean, I am an activist. I have marched all over the place for trees and forests and human rights and all sorts of things. I am an activist in my heart and I don't want to be an angry activist, right? I don't want to hate half the population who voted differently than me. That's not my deal. And, and I don't think many of us want to do that. We want to get to the love. So in this closing, you know, we're headed into the holidays here. Give us a little bit of a, a line or two about how to hold the, hold the heart, hold our hearts open while we're being activists. The way that we have to work is, again, real and experiential. And the only way 
to hold your heart open in the midst of all the news and everything that's going on right now yeah. is to be in the company of people of love and avoid consuming the toxics avoid the news know what's going on but avoid it you don't need 10 newscasters telling you what they think you think yeah so avoid taking in the things that bring you down and really attend to those arenas that build you up do a lot of singing do a lot of dancing do a lot of <laughs> Do a lot of yoga, do a lot of meditation, do a lot of walks on the beach, do a lot of love with your lover, do a lot of these things that build your spirit. Because right now, the only thing that will take us through, the only thing that will keep us joyful is that inner strength that comes from spirit. Perfect. So feed the spirit and go for a fast on the negative. My wife and I at this time are not turning on the television. We do not, except for inspired documentaries, we do not watch anything that's going on in this world. We know what's going on in this world. We know it's the darkest just before the dawn. We're preparing for the dawn. So Guru, everyone can find you at gurusingh, S-I-N-G-H dot com, and on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, as we said. And your book, Buried Treasures, is on Amazon. Oh, I hope everybody gets it. Is there anything else you want to share before we close? Well, this has been an honor. You and I have known each other for so long. We've seen each other in so many different settings. And this has been a real honor to really focus on this aspect of, you know, writers and writing. I mean, you know, you always see that t-shirt, the secret to writing is writing. And the realities that you bring to writers, the realities that you brought to me, you know, I'm a spiritual leader, I'm a master yogi, I'm all of these things. But when you need something, you go to the person that has the best advice, that has the best guidance. People come to me for the guidance that I can give. And I've sent so many people to you for the guidance that you give, helping people unwrap their writer, helping people to give themselves permission to be that, that incredible wordsmith that they are. And if they're not an incredible wordsmith, you help to teach them to find that within themselves and to discover that inspiration and that confidence and, you know, I've sent many people to your workshops and to you as a personal writing coach and even to you as an editor. And every one of them has come away with the same attitude. And that is that they were indebted to me for sending them to you. So it's kind of an odd indebtedness, but it only speaks to how valuable you are. And I think that that value is what this world needs now because a lot of people have to express themselves the way the world is moving and the way that the direction that a lot of things that we thought we had overcome as a society and we realize that we haven't actually overcome them. We've just sort of pushed them aside and now they're coming back with a vengeance. And so really conscious, compassionate and passionate writers need to come out of the woodwork. And I can think of nothing 
more than sending them all to you to allow them to um, discover the power that they have with words. So bless you. And I love this experience of our interview. And your enthusiasm is always so rich and deep. Oh, well, thank oh my God. And, you know, we didn't even talk about it here. I think it's in my interview with you for Live's Charm. But it's because of you that I had the courage to write. I mean, that first day when you looked at me in the eyes, the very first time I met you and said, what the hell are you doing hiding behind your dogs? I hadn't even told yeah. you. I, I hadn't even told you I was a professional dog walker. I never told you or anybody other than my sister that I longed to be a writer and didn't feel smart enough. And you called me on it and you stared me down and you scared the crap out of me, but made me feel relieved and seen at the same time. And we discussed how I had the ideas right after I went to your yoga class. But it's because I unfortunately don't have the time anymore to do the editing and the private sessions that I used to do that I loved so much. But it's because of some of the people you've sent me, April and Leanne and Dawn, and I could go on and on. These women who I spent a week with in Carmel and became sisters with. And, you know, you attract such high vibration, beautiful souls into your world. And it's just infused my business and my retreats and my whole experience on this planet as a writer and as a coach in a way that I can't even put it into words. So I'm not even going to try anymore. But thank you. That was a wonderful surprise. And I'm incredibly grateful that you would bring that up. So thank you, Guru. They've all told me about these incredible sessions in Carmel. And it blows them away because they find them to be more than just workshops. They find them to be, as you say, a meeting of kindred spirits. I think it might just be the uh, cookies. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. We have a chef that is yeah. ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Organic cookies. I think that's it. We'll, All right, we'll, we'll just laugh at that because we know that cookies are good, but this is better. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I love you, Guru. Love you I with love all you, my heart. I love you, Linda, and love to all those who listen to your wonderful podcasts. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll see you very, very soon, Linda. Can't wait. Bless you. Love you. Mm, love you too. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Guru is epic, and we need epic right about now. I am so grateful to have this forum that enables me to share some of the people I love most in this world. I consider it a sacred honor to have your ear each month, and I take that really seriously, who I interview and what we talk about and the vibes we put out into this world. If you are getting value from these chats, thank you, thank you for leaving a review if you haven't already. And I would love to see you over at my blog at bookmama.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where I'm pretty active. In the meantime... May you and yours be especially blessed this holiday season. And you know what to do. Right on, my friends.